Hey, welcome to the American Writers 100 Page at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Jefferson's uh, letters, where we're getting to the home stretch here. Uh, we'll be entering Thomas Jefferson's retirement in this episode and uh, seeing his re- re- the renewal of his friendship with John Adams, which, of course, are going to create some of his greatest and, and most well-known uh, letters. A lot of them are included here, not all. I think he, he must have wrote 50 or more letters to Adams after 1812. Only we got maybe a dozen of them here, half a dozen. But we're going to look at those and, um, you know, just kind of carry on to see what was in Jefferson's letters in the years uh, during the final years of his presidency and and after. So um, I'm, in, I'm going to look forward to talking about this with you. Um, so, yeah, so this period of Jefferson's life, I think, uh, starts out quite, quite sad, I think. I, I really felt sorry for Jefferson, as far as I can feel sorry for, for someone like him. Uh, you know, in his final years of presidency, he just feels he can't do much. He feels, I think on some level, he feels his principles have, have been betrayed by the necessity of office. And you see by, in his later letters, where he really tries to be apolitical. He, once in a while, he'll talk politics, but in generally, he, and he does give advice and policy recommendations, but he really tries to step outside of politics. I, I think he was really damaged by that. You know, I talked about how much, you know, how I was a bit disappointed that it wasn't more kind of campaigning in his letters or actually in this whole collection. You don't get much sense of just how rancorous and, and nasty the 1800 election was or even the 1796 election, but especially the 1800 one. You know, it, it wasn't just policy differences that led to the Jefferson Adams breakup. It was really pretty nasty language. And, and that's why I was kind of shocked to see in these like letters, no, nothing really kind of coming out saying I'm, I'm running for president when well, we know just how how nasty the politics were at the time from from other sources so um but i just feel he's so weary of these things and it's almost like he's he's kind of given up and i don't know i'm sure a lot of presidents by their their final years have had felt um, pretty bleak and 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 worn out by by their by their presidency but um, Jefferson especially comes off that way to me in, the, in these, these later letters. Um, and then when you get to see his retirement, it just seems so refreshing to him. And, and we, we really see a, a different Thomas Jefferson writing. Writing about things he's more interested in. That's one thing I, I enjoy reading. And we start to get more of his kind of exposed, open opinions about things. It's, it's not so couched in, in kind of the political debates of the day. He's, he's kind of able to step out of them and so i think we get a more more honest look at, at his views and and he starts to talk more about some of the very interesting racial issues that i think uh cloud his and rightfully cloud his his reputation and his how his career is remembered um yeah a lot of local he gets kind of get back into the local politics and his his vision for local politics that's kind of interesting as well um so anyways um, as always, I'm going to kind of talk through his, the, you know, go year by year and then kind of look at a few letters so we can kind of follow his biography as we, as we look at his letters. So we're beginning in 1807. If you want to, earlier letters, you got to go back to my, my previous episodes where I talk about those. Um, in 1807, well, 1807, uh, a couple big events in Jefferson's presidency. The first what would be the trial of Aaron Burr, the, the, the Burr conspiracy. Now, this is, a, I guess, the first major treason 
kind of crisis in American history, a former vice president basically conspiring to, to form sort of an independent state out west. Um, and the trial of Aaron Burr was, was a major event in 1807. We looked at, or at least I, I didn't say much about them because I'm not that particularly interested in the Aaron Burr trial, but uh, there were documents where he wrote to Congress about, about that before, and it, and it comes off a little bit in his letters too. Um, then we have growing conflict with Britain and, and France over the deepening of the Napoleonic Wars. For instance, we got the U.S. Chesapeake situation where, where a, a British ship basically boarded uh, a U.S. ship uh, without their permission looking for, was it, you know, French soldiers or contraband or something. And, and this led to a deepening of tensions between Great Britain and the United States. Oh wait, no. Th this was actually the the ship was actually fired upon because they didn't let the British um, desert, and there was actually growing demand by Americans for for war. And of course, war would come in eighteen twelve, um, actually, with pretty broad support, even uh, especially from the South. Uh, you have the Embargo Act as well. The Embargo Act, which was uh, Jefferson's kind of major effort to basically say we're not going to trade with England or or France during this war, Great Britain or France during this this war. And this just led to an increased smuggling and and, and larger problems. So like so many prohibitions, uh, the Embargo Act just simply was an outright failure. And he had to retreat from that within a, pretty much within a year. In 1807 also, he, he announces his retirement from public office, uh, basically, following the precedent of, of, of George Washington. Obviously, George Washington only wanted one term. He served the second term in part because of Jefferson and Hamilton's uh, conflict, and he was worried about the future of, of stable governance and the formation of parties and all that. Adams, of course, just one term, so Jefferson had the choice. Do we use as he run again? He probably would have won re-election. When you read the letters, it's pretty clear he doesn't want to be president anymore. Um, but also, you know, the there's no law. There was no, you know, no constitutional prohibition on someone running more than twice. So he enforces the standard and it becomes, of course, the, the standard for, for quite a while. Um, so that's what happens in 1807. So we're getting to the end of his, his presidency. Now, the very first letter we have here from 1807 is a pretty important one. It's dated January 13, 1807. It's to John Dickinson, and it's really about problems in the West. And he, he kind of goes through a bunch of them. One is kind of other countries interfering in the West, because, of course, the West has been expanded with the Louisiana Purchase by this time, and but it's still kind of a, it's really a frontier area. So there are, um, you know, people trying to bring slaves into this region. There are French... Frenchmen hanging out in, the, in that territory as well. Uh, and then there's a lot of like squatting and dubious land claims and people claiming land they don't have title to and, and kind of overlapping claims to land. And that's causing a lot of discontent and, and, frust and, and problems out in the West. And then he also argues there's, there's kind of ongoing conflict between the Federalists and the Republicans, out, like fighting it out in kind of the Western territories now. Um, and he writes all this with, with kind of his hands up in the air, not knowing what to do. And he concludes the letter to, to, um, to Dickinson saying, I, had I, I have tired you, my friend, with a long letter, but your tedium will end in a few lines more. Mine has yet two years to endure. I am tired of an office where I can do no more good than many others 
who would be glad to be employed in it. To myself personally, it brings nothing but unceasing drudgery and daily loss of friends. Every office becoming vacant, every appointment made. May dona un ingrat es sant anamis. My only condolence, consolation is that the belief that my fellow citizens at large give me credit for good intentions. End quote. So he's gradually becoming more and more alone um, because of that. And uh, thankfully, when we, we see his letters after his retirement, he does still have, it seems, a lot of friends. And he's able to rekindle his friendship with some of these, these people. So a problem of French citizens out in the West, problem of, of slaves being brought out into the West, malaise about his pregnancy. It's a pretty gloomy, gloomy letter. Um, in one letter here to uh, William Claiborne, uh, February 1807, he speaks on the Burr conspiracy and the Burr trial. And, you know, you might look at the Burr trial, the Burr uh, situation and say, see, this is a sign that this kind of republic is, is doomed to kind of failure because people are sort of too free and the state's not powerful enough. But Jefferson doesn't read it that way, obviously. He, he thinks, if anything, uh, the Burr conspiracy shows the, the power of, of the republic. And he says, like, in, a, in, any, in Europe, if there was a similar kind of conspiracy to essentially carve off a piece of country as an independent state, this would have led to the raising of, of armies, you know, massive, uh, you know, efforts to suppress an uprising, civil war, essentially. But instead, with just a, a military arrest and a small band of soldiers, they were able to put down this, this major, major rebellion. Um, so he sees it really as, as evidence of the strength of, of the Republic. Um, I, I really enjoyed this letter he wrote to John Norville, which um, it's kind of another like, like an intellectual advice letter, which he, he wrote a lot more. There hasn't in, in previous years, there hasn't been that many. He wrote like this in the presidency, but basically people coming to him with advice on essentially what to learn, how, how to learn about governance, how to learn about this topic law or whatever and what books to read. And, and this really allows Jefferson to show off his, his knowledge and, 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 and his advice and you know, and he gives kind of a bibliography essentially here of what books to read. He talks about history and, you know, his attitude towards history in a revolutionary society, I think is kind of interesting because um, essentially Jefferson's view is that history teaches only uh, the worst that government can be. Essentially, he's saying that there's no real good models from previous times to to build off of. And I guess he's throwing in the... Um, the classics here, although he, you know, sometimes he, sometimes he seems to want to emulate the, the classics, at least in terms of their architecture, um, he doesn't see much hope there. Um, and therefore, he really do, is not very good at recommending. He doesn't see any great histories to recommend one to learn about good governance. And then the, the, the letter moves into some of his commentary. He's just total disappointment with Bonaparte and what Bonaparte has done to the French Revolution. Um, you know, basically pushing uh, pushing Europe into into what he sees here as a, as a type of tyranny based on falsehood and lies, and then from here he's he's talks about the the overall like frustration he has with with the nature of kind of public discourse and and where the press is. He, he he's not anti free press, but he thinks the press is kind of been descended into into slander, into into kind of rumor mongering, into kind of gotcha politics, which of course you know is nothing. It, it, you know we're we're used to that today, obviously. 
He says, quote, such an editor, too, would have to set his face against the demoralizing practice of feeding the public mind habitually on slander and the depravity of taste, which this nauseous ailment induces. Defamation is becoming the necessary of life insomuch that a dish of tea in the morning or evening cannot be digested without the stimulant. Even those who do not believe these abominations still read them with the complacence to their auditors. And instead of the abhorrence and indignation, which should fill a virtuous mind, betray a secret pleasure in the possibility that some may believe it and and that they do not, but they do not themselves. End quote. And I, you know, he's got to be anxious about what people are saying about him too. We we know that his the rumors about Sally Hemings had already been exposed to the public, and they, be, you know, he was certainly spoken of in harsh terms by the Adams people during the election, the 1800 election, and throughout his career. And I think one of the reasons he definitely wants to to get on with his retirement is just the. The nature of the press but he never comes out against the press he never does the trump line of fake news he, he still seems to believe in their their role um, and then just one more letter from 1807 that i want to highlight and that's to robert fulton which is just kind of fascinating it, it was written in monticello I, so he wasn't in washington at the time and he's talking about harbor defense and he's written before about harbor defense and he had this idea of of you know, basing like more of a Coast Guard kind of model. And I think one of his public papers talked about that. But he asks him, have you ever seen to the submarine boat as the most depended upon for attaching them, though? I see no mention of that in your letter or your publications. I'm in hopes that you have not abandoned as impractical. I should wish to see a corps of young men trained to this service. It would belong to the engineers if on land, but being nautical, I suppose we must have a corps of naval engineers to practice and use them. I do not know whether we have the authority to put any part of our existing naval establishment in the course of training, but it should be a subject of consultation with the Secretary of the Navy. So, you know, these are the early days of experimentation with, with, with submarines, right? And of course, they really don't take off till the middle of the 19th century, but, um, you know, they're pretty primitive experimental phase at this point but but jefferson here's given the the go-ahead on on increased experimentation and he talks about torpedoes too using torpedoes um in in harbor different defense and i don't know what torpedoes look like in those those days i mean what they even consisted of so um kind of um, a little window in, i guess into jefferson's the role in, in encouraging military technological developments in, in the early 19th century. Okay, I decided to do the work and, and look some of the stuff up for you, um, if you don't know. So Robert Fulton, of course, was this uh, engineer who, you know, I think he worked for the British, and, and maybe he, he was an American, though. And so he, in 1800, he actually invented this submarine called the Nautilus, right, which was... Uh, you know the first uh, the first kind of manned submarine ever to be used, but he, he kind of ended those experiments. Now, as for these torpedoes, um, here I'll just read what Wikipedia says. In the early 1800s, the American inventor Robert Fulton, while in France, conceived the idea of destroying ships by introducing floating mines under their bottoms in submarine boats. He coined the term torpedo in reference to the explosive charges with which he outfitted the submarine Nautilus. However, both the French and Dutch governments were uninterested in the submarine. He then concentrated on developing the torpedo independent of the submarine deployment. So in 1805, while in England, Fulton put on public display of his infernal machine sinking the brig Dorothea with a submerged bomb filled with 180 pounds of gunpowder and a clock set to explode in 18 minutes. 
However, the British government refused to purchase the invention, stating they didn't want to introduce into warfare a system that filled with that would be a great advantage to weaker maritime nations. Very interesting. Um, so he filled out, carried a similar demonstration to the U.S. government in July 1807, destroying the vessel in New York Harbor. So that must be what Jefferson here is responding to in his letter. So super interesting. Uh, first that... Uh, that this was invented and, and experimented with, which I did not really know, um, and how it was done, that originally it would be something actually placed onto boats by a submarine, and then later on they actually figured out how to propel it, it seems. Um, but also that the British didn't want this because they thought it would empower weaker nations, which of course it it seems to do it almost like the way it's presented here. It's almost like a asymmetrical warfare at the time. Now, of course, uh, major powers use submarines and it's not quite asymmetrical warfare. But when in the early 20th century, when the Germans tried to match or achieve naval dominance vis-a-vis -vis Britain, right? Of course, before World War One, the Germans tried using battleships to achieve naval uh, equity with with. Great Britain, and they never quite got there, right? And uh, their their fleet was destroyed early in the war. But then they switched to the U-boat campaign submarines, which, you know, although on land the Germans certainly had the most powerful military, at sea they didn't. So it's kind of asymmetrical on sea, and and submarines achieved that. And of course, in World War II as well. Um, so I don't know. There there could be a whole kind of uh, investigation, a research project into into this. Um, into this technology and its uses and what it meant for, for warfare. Um, anyway, it's kind of fascinating stuff. So that's, that's Robert Fulton's uh, submarine and Jefferson's interest in them. He actually encouraging Fulton to, to go ahead and, and develop the, these weapons. So those are the only letters I want to focus on for, for, for 1807. Moving ahead to 1808, what we find are that smugglers really prove the impossibility of enforcing the Embargo Act, right? A, a, a straight-up embargo against Britain and France was just impossible for the United States to enforce first. Uh, they couldn't even stop smugglers from leaving the United States and, and coming in with goods from Britain and France, much less, you know, preventing, you know, like enforcing it against the British and the French uh, powers. So it, he eventually had to give up on it. This hope of, of forcing kind of peace on Europe, of forcing neutrality by, through, Kind of a curse on both your houses strategy eventually fails and and he, you know in 1809 he's going to pass a law that's going to basically undo the embargo act now sally has another child in 1808 so um obviously jefferson's spending a lot of time in in monticello and we get his eighth annual message in which jefferson begins to talk about and observe the growth of domestic manufacturing in the United States. And of course, it, this is talked about a little bit in Henry Adams' history of the Jefferson years. And you kind of find it talked about a little bit in, in pretty much any history book of, of, you know, kind of a survey textbook, is that one impact of the Embargo Act and the trade war with Britain and France during the Jefferson years was an encouragement of domestic manufacturing, right? Um, it almost worked like the protectionism that, that Hamilton originally wanted, right? You stop importation through tariffs, and this will then increase domestic manufacturing. Well, Jefferson didn't believe in tariffs, but he pursues an embargo, I mean, which seems even more radical, right? But that has the same effect of encouraging, you know, you know self-sufficiency, the self-sufficiency of path 
of, of development, if you will. So as much as he believed in that kind of free trade path to development and developing the nation's economy, he ended up going with the, the more self-sufficiency path, but not, you know, not because he intended to, because it was an outcropping of, of, you know, of, of the Embargo Act. And I think we looked at the eighth annual message in, when we looked at his speeches. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, we, we looked at it briefly. I don't think I said too much about it, though. But that was in a, in a previous episode. We, we talked about that. So um, not much else of, of real importance in 1808 to, to speak of, to put these letters into, into context. Um, so early in 1808, he wrote, writes to Reverend Samuel Miller um, on the topic of, of religious freedom. And, you know, he's basically forced here to educate this this clergyman about the, the role of the federal government in respect to establishing religion. And he had a very clear idea about that. I mean, he wrote the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedoms, which, of course, was the on which the, the, the First Amendment's provisions on religion were, 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 were written on. So he says, um, I consider the government of the U.S. as interdicted by the Constitution from intermingling with religious institutions or doctrines, discipline, or exercises. This results not from the provision that no law shall be made respecting the establishment or free exercise of religion, but also from what reserves to the states of powers not delegated to the U.S. To the US. Now, of course, you know, Jefferson was one of the people who wanted the enumerated rights, the Bill of Rights, right? The response to it, well... You know, it's kind of implied that states have authorities that the U.S. government doesn't have, right? But he he says here there's actually two constitutional amendments that that guarantee religious freedom. The first, and I guess that would be the tenth, right? So moving on, certainly no power to prescribe any religious exercise or to assume authority in religious discipline has been delegated to the general government. It must therefore rest with the states as far as it can be in any human authority. But it's only proposed that I should recommend, not prescribe, a day of fasting and prayer. That is, that I should indirectly assume to the United States an authority over religious exercise, which the Constitution has directly precluded them from. It must be meant, too, that this recommendation is to carry some authority. So what's going on here is he's, he's commenting on a request that he basically offer forth a day of prayer and, and fasting. And he says, you know, if you read this, establishing religion, if it's to be done at all, which he has some doubt, has to be done at the, can only be done at the state level. Um, but then he eventually says, you know, no, I'm not going to, to do this. Um, and he kind of politely declines this request to do it. And it's, it's implied in the letter that they told him, like, well, Je Washington would have done this kind of thing, or your predecessors would have done it. And, and Washington or Jefferson here says, no, I'm not going to um, do that. So he seems fairly consistent on religious freedom throughout his, his career. Um, whether, whether his religious ideas change or not, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open. I know that argument has been made that, that somehow he, he becomes more religious later in his life. You know, that maybe in his deathbed, he had the deathbed conversion to, to, to Christianity. I mean, so far, I haven't seen any evidence of a, of a change. And, you know, I respect him for his consistency on, on this, this principle. Um, I, I know a lot of presidents have declared kind of something like prayer days or, or things like that. Um, since then, I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe someone can, can let me know. But I have some memory of, of more recent presidents offering fourth days of prayer for whatever reason. Um, what else do we have here? Some nice uh, bones for the National Institute. This was uh, Washington, uh, July 14th, 1808, which was a, um, 
some science of the different bones that would be deposited in the national some some national institute. So what is it? They're addressed to Mr. Warden of our legation at Paris for the National Institute. Oh, this is to Paris. These are bones in America from America to Paris. Um, all right, one major letter here, though, is late in 1808, November 1808, and it's to Thomas Jefferson Randolph, and it's about education. And he, he like in a lot of his letters on education, he, he makes, you know, kind of gives specific advice, at least to adults. He gives specific advice on what they need to, to study, what books they need to read. This one is really full of values, and I, I think that's what might be interesting about that. It's not even so much about pedagogy, but about the importance of, of certain values and and approaches and and he kind of argues for a little bit of, of self-moderation that he didn't have right he's getting older right so he starts to think back in his youth and maybe a zealotry in, in new ways and mostly what he seems to regret is that he was so focused on his studies that he kind of neglected the social aspect of his of his his life and he's actually encouraging um, his grandson to pursue an education that's much more social and much more engaged in the world and much more based on politeness and, and etiquette and these kinds of things. He writes, when I recollect that at 14 years of age, the whole care and direction of myself was thrown on myself entirely without a relation or friend qualified to advise or guide me and recollect the various sorts of bad company with which I associated from time to time. And I am astonished I did not turn off with some of them and became as worthless to society as they were. I had the good fortune to become acquainted very early with some characters of high standards and to feel the incessant wish that I could ever become what they were. So what's here? Be social, um, be active, but but be around good people. Um, but he also has a stage statement here where he kind of does the follow your dream kind of idea and engage in these different activities. It's not just book learning is not important. Um, you know, he, he even gives his own... Um, personal experience again talking about how he was thrown in different uh, societies and social groups card players fox hunters scientific and professional men dignified men and after experiencing these he would think do i want to be a horse jockey a fox hunter an orator or a quote honest advocate of my country's rights and he concludes be assured my dear jefferson that these little returns into ourselves the self catechizing habit is not trifling nor useless but leads to the prudent selection and steady pursuits of what is right I've mentioned good humor as one of the preservations of our peace and tranquility. Um, so there's there's a mixture of things here, and, and it's, a, it's a bit of a jumbled letter, but it's not a, it's not about didactism so much, but it is uh, a nice advice letter, I think, uh, about about moderation, but also a more kind of I don't want to go so far as to say youth-centered kind of approach, but um, definitely. Um, encouraging students to cautiously pursue their interests freely. I say cautiously because there's several warnings in here about not getting involved with the wrong crowd. He says, I almost got involved in the wrong crowd. And he says, like, stay away from taverns, stay away from smokers and idlers and dissipated persons generally. For it is with such that broils and contentions arise and you'll find your path more easy and tranquil. End quote. Well, I don't know about taverns and smokers and all that but i know running for president seems to cause a lot of broil and contentions as as jefferson's own life um, suggests so what else benjamin waterhouse sowing the upland rice uh, 
Yeah, this is just about um, uh, global trade and rights. I mean, there's several letters here that talk in one way or another on, on the subject of global gardening. Um, global gardening, of course, is, is the product of the Columbian Exchange um, with the you know, the long, one of the long-term consequences of the European conquest of the Americas was the introduction of Eurasian animals, diseases, crops to the Americas. Think of wheat in Nebraska or whatever. And also the introduction of New World crops to Europe, like the potatoes in Ireland or, or maize all over the world. That, that's now when agricultural systems were converted to make use of this, you know, maybe instead of doing um, traditional three-field cropping where you have, what is it, a, a spring wheat, a winter wheat, and then clover or something that animals would eat, graze on and then fertilize that soil, and then you would rotate, right? With, you know, the introduction of new world beans, legumes, legumes, you can have like a, a, a different kind of three-field system or a four-field system where you, you might grow beans, right? So when you're consciously doing that, that's, that's called global gardening, right? So there's actually quite a few letters where Jefferson's talking to people about different crops that are being brought over from the old world to Eurasia, incorporated into new areas. Um, and this particular um, rice is from, from like Vietnam, it seems. And it's being brought out. The, Air, the Agricultural Society in Charleston is engaged in trying to practice and innovate and cultivating this crop in, in the American South. So. Uh, I don't know what came of it. Um, there's a mention here of Bartram, uh, the naturalist um, William Bartram, who Library of America did publish a, a collection of his writing in one volume. So yeah, I, I, there's not too much to analyze here or to, to think too much about, but just the, you know, we should be aware that, that Jefferson was on top of, of some of these innovations in agriculture. And despite not doing much farming himself, he had slaves to do that. Um, I do want to give him some credit as someone who's at least curious about innovations in agriculture. All right, that does it for 1808. So 1809, finally Jefferson can be liberated from his, from his, his presidency. All right, so 1809. Um, 1809 is most notable for, I mean, legislative-wise, this is his, his lame duck, Jefferson's lame duck period, is he did pass a non-intercourse act, and this was the backtracking, I mean, it sounds like just another prohibition on, on trade, but actually it was a, a rollback of the Embargo Act. It was kind of a retreat. So this reopened, essentially it reopens trade. There, there was still some, uh, some kind of regulation, I think, but by and large, it, it undid the Embargo Act and, and, and kind of accepted the fact that the United States would have to trade with these belligerent powers and, and do so perhaps in ways that... Um, we're unfortunate for, for what Jefferson was after. Um, eventually, there would be a war with Britain. So you, I, I don't know if, if you want to say the, the Non-Intercourse Act was a mistake. I, you'd have to look at an early American expert to, uh, in this period to, to answer that question. But in any case, um, there's that. And then he begins his retirement. He gets to Monticello as quickly as he can and turns his back on Washington. The letters, you really see this kind of fog lifted from... From his from his mind, um, like if you look at his 1809 letter to James Monroe, um, written in January 28, so he's still in the White House at the time. You just see like his frustration over the threat, the the growing kind of dread about the U.S. being drawn into a war, and just his overall despair at the presidency overall. 
um, you know, he, he basically thinks that if Bonaparte, like Bonaparte's actions are going, Napoleon Bonaparte's actions are going to lead to, to war with the United States and that with the Spanish colonies, the British colonies in America, it's almost inevitably going to happen. Um, this last, this is what he writes, this last trial for peace is not thought desperate. If, as is expected, Bonaparte should be successful in Spain, however, every virtuous and liberal sentiment revolts at it. It may induce both powers to be more accommodating with us. England will see her the only asylum for her commerce and manufacturers worth more to her than orders of council. And Bonaparte, having Spain at his feet, will immediately look to the Spanish colonies and think our neutrality cheaply purchased by the repeal of the legal parts of his decrees. Um, it's kind of interesting that he thinks one of the, the major ways that is going to stop a war with uh, an American war with a European power is if, if France is successful and, and, and England is forced by the continental system, right? Uh, Bonaparte's effort to, to basically blo blockade Europe from continental trade would, you know, that Napoleon's victory is the only thing that would stop um, um, a war or would be the best option for the United States. Um, but at the end, he's just at the end of this letter, he's just saying five weeks and I'm out of here. And he's, you know, seems so eager for that. So anyways, we, we're, we'll be able to put Jefferson's presidency behind, too. I'm a, I'm a bit weary of it myself. Um, uh, we got a letter here. John Hollins. The, uh, this is this is. Uh, Peaking off, building off something that Jefferson had written before to other people, which is just this connection, this this connection between kind of American innovation and sciences, and and republicanism, right? Um, he just thinks that republics that are at peace um, are going to be better in the mechanical arts, in the sciences, and in in knowledge creation. He writes, I mention these things to show the nature of the correspondence which is carried on between societies instituted for the benevolent purpose of communicating to all parts of the world whatever useful is discovered in any one of them. These societies are always in peace, however their nations may be at war. Like the Republic of Letters, they form a great fraternity spreading over the whole of Earth, and their correspondence is never interrupted by any civilized nation. End quote. And really what he's saying here is that there's a... a Almost like another, there's like the republic you're a part of, or the if you're, you know, the monarchy, whatever. There's those states, those those nations, those governments out there, right? Um, but on top of it is is another layer of republic, the republic of letters, or the republic of science, right? And it's a transnational kind of community of scholars who share things equally, who cooperate, who who have all the values of a republic, um, but but aren't a formal government. And that's that's what he means here by by the the republic of science sciences. It's not that just that uh, republics are best suited for the cultivation of science, which he wrote in other letters, but that there is a kind of a, a, a transnational level to it. Um, oh, back to race. This was written. So this was a letter to a guy named Henri Gregor. Um, Wash is from Washington, February twenty fifth, eighteen oh nine. Um, it's just a, an acknowledgement letter to a book he got, which is a book called The Literature of, of Negroes. Now, I couldn't find this particular book. Um, you know, it, it must have existed, so it must be out there somewhere. But it sounds just like what it sounds like. It sounds like an anthology of, of, of black writers. And we know what um, Jefferson has previously said about black writers from Notes on the State of Virginia, where he mentions that, you know, Phyllis Wheatley is basically not a good poet, is, is his profound conclusion about black literature and that's about as much as I've ever seen him write on this this topic um, and what he says here is 
almost word for word to what he said in another letter on the same topic of, of black achievement. Um, he writes, be assured that no person living wishes more sincerely than I do to see the complete refutation of the doubts that I've entertained and expressed on the grade of understanding allotted to them by nature and to find that in this respect they are on par with ourselves. My doubts were the result of personal observations on the limited sphere of my own state, where the opportunities for development of their genius were not favorable. And then he goes on like that. And then he says, you know, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, is superior to all of us. So let's not be too hung up on hierarchies of, of intelligence, even though the whole letter is insulting. Uh, it's just like the other one he wrote where he's like, oh, I wish black people, I really do hope black people could be the, you know, intel you know as, as smart as white people. But I just don't see much evidence of this, you know, but who knows, maybe, you know, in a perfect world, you know, it's, there's so many buts and hymns and, and ands about it that it really does come off as a fairly insulting letter. Uh, I wonder if he even read this book. I, I, I highly doubt he, he read this book. He's just acknowledging that he got it. He's still president when he wrote this, by the way. Um, February 25th, 1809. Remember the lame duck periods were much longer. Um, in those days before the second half of the 20th century. We have a letter here dated March 2nd to P.S. Dupont de Nemours, one of his French friends, I guess, where he's talking about the, his liberation that will come. A prisoner released from his change is the language he uses for, for himself coming out of pregnancy. He says, never did a prisoner released of his chains feel such a relief as I of shaking off the shackles of power. Nature intended me for a tranquil pursuits of science by rendering them my supreme delight. But the enormity of the times in which I lived had forced me to take part in resisting them and to commit myself to the boisterous ocean of political passions. End quote. You know, and this is something I kind of struggled with throughout reading these. Um, you know, he writes so much about the being kind of forced into office or, or like you know, history pulling him into public life that he never really wanted, right? First of all, you know, he has this choice because he has a billion slaves working for him, right? And he inherited all this wealth from his from his wife. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to say when you have the choice of what you want to do in your life to say, oh, history pulled me into, he made me be president, right? Um, I don't know. I, I, we, I don't see him, though, like exposing himself much in these letters, at least the ones I, I read here and the ones that are collected here, as being that self-serving. I mean, I don't, you know, he's right in a way. He could have just stayed a Monted Fellow. So um, the closest we get is, I think, in the late 17, uh, 1790s when he was vice president. There's a lot of frothing in his letters about kind of this historical moment. And he started to feel himself really as a leader of historical moment. And that's what kind of led him to his, to the office of the presidency. So I don't know. I mean, someone who knows Jefferson better than me can maybe give their answer. But my, my impression is that he, maybe there is something to this fact that he felt like kind of this Republican duty, this duty to fulfill his obligation to, to the people. Um, at least that's how he presents it publicly. So I can say at least that much. I'm confident that that's an accurate reading of how he presented himself publicly. But if there was an inner kind of desire for power, I mean, I don't see it. I, 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 you know, maybe it's there. I don't. I don't know what he gained by being president, except the, you know, ulcers. But um, and, and of course, I'm reading his letters, so maybe a, a, a broader view of the period will tell us something different, or maybe all, all kind of people are after that kind of vanity, right? That's. I think it's isn't it Adam Smith who talks about that in the, the, uh, theory of moral sentiments that the rich who have everything, you know, at that point they want like 
fame and, and honor and respect of their peers and all that. That it's it's kind of a after you're materially beneath their net, once you're rich, then it's almost inevitable that people are gonna want that acknowledgement of their greatness by others. I think that's in uh, theory of moral sentiments. So almost immediately we see with his retirement, we see Jefferson, uh, you know, and obviously withdrawing from the big political issues, but he's still interested in, in, in public service, it seems, or at least gives advice. He's got a really interesting letter, which, you know, uh, at least for me, someone who likes books, uh, from May 1809, so this is just a few months after his retirement, uh, to a guy named John Witch about circulating libraries. So this guy seems to be in Virginia. I'm not sure. Anyways, it doesn't matter because his advice here is to set up a circulating library in every county of, of, of the state. He says, I thought nothing would do more extensive good at small expense than to establish a small circulating library in every county to consist of a few well-chosen books to be lent to the people of the county under such regulations as to secure their safe return or whatever, due dates, right? Little fines. I still agree. One of the libraries are, are one of the best models of, of, of functioning communism, um, one of the most effective and popular um, programs. And whenever I hear of a local government slashing library budgets or something, I just... I just want to I cringe a little bit. Um, oh, here. So June 28th, uh, 1809, he wrote to P.S. Dupont de Nemours. This is the same guy who wrote his his kind of liberation letter. <laughs> I'm finally pre not president anymore and I can retire. Uh, this is on manufacturing and on household manufacturing and different types of manufacturing in America. And, you know, what? You know, Jefferson by... 1809 has to realize that the United States is no longer uh, a strictly agrarian nation, that it has made, it has moved along the path of becoming a manufacturing country. Um, he kind of does throw out there that like in the South, we do household manufacturing. Our, our manufacturing is done in the house, not in the factory. Um, but, you know, he's not pushing the agrarian deal anymore. He's just sort of acknowledging and, and summarizing how the United States has has become more of a manufacturing art. And uh, he even talks about publishing. He's really proud of publishing, and it's great because, um, you know, in an, earlier, in an earlier document we looked at, he, this actually, I think, was actually after 1809, so he was still thinking about it then. No, it was about the book duty, the tariff on books. He was really offended by that. But now he says, uh, we have made great promise among printing. There, there, heretofore, we imported our books. And with them, much political principle from England. Now we print a great deal of books, and we shall soon supply ourselves with most of the books of considerable demand. I love how he throws that in there, that like when we buy these books from England, we're getting the corruption of, of English political values. I don't know how, you know. He likes Hume, so when you read Hume, does that come in? Is it like between the lines? In the preface, I suppose. The preface by the editor will, will corrupt the reader. But if a good American will edit the works of Hume, it will not be so tainted, I suppose. Um, one quick one before we move on to 1811 and, and 1812. Um, oh, sorry, 18. Oh, this one is 1810. Sorry, so we're, we're jumping ahead to 1810 already. But let me just do this one before telling you what happened in his life in 1810. It's, it's, an, it's a letter to Samuel Kirchvel um, about Quakers. And I, mentioned, I only mention this because... I thought Jefferson would be a little more benevolent to, to the Quakers, in, given his views on religious freedom. Um, but wow, what does he say about that? Um, 
I'll give you a taste. Um. Well, first he, he talks about the, the, the kind of corruption of Christianity overall. He, he writes, um, a rational man would not be able to swallow their imperious heresies in order to force them down their throats. They raise the hue and cry of infidelity while themselves are the greatest obstacle to the advancement of the real doctrines of Jesus and do in fact constitute the real Antichrist. So this is his, uh, this is his unvarnished view of, of, of Christianity. But then he talks about the Quakers. And he's not that much nicer to the Quakers. You'd think he might, he might be nicer to them because they're, they're kind of pacifist or whatever. But no, he says they really, they're a Trojan host for, for Englishness. Their principle of peace as a secondary one yielded to the primary one of adherence to the friends in England. And what was patriotism in the original became treason in the copy. By saying that what was Quakers were patriotic in England, but in America, they're, of course, traitors to, to the United States. So he doesn't have anything good to say about Quakers. But you know who else didn't have anything good to say about the Quakers, as I recall, was Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, writing a little bit earlier, had the same view, just did not trust the Quakers in the revolutionary struggle. He thought they would basically be the same, you know, that those would be essentially closeted Tories or loyalists. So, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I don't know why the, the Quakers were so hated. Was there something they, they did to defend these, these founders, these um, early patriots? Um, just for the last, let me just talk about last year, the last years of, well, the, the three years altogether, 1810 to eight. 1812, what happened in those years? I, there's not that much. He's retired, right? But we do see him beginning to talk more and more about creation, creating a national education system and becoming more interested in education, uh, an endeavor that will culminate with uh, his work on the creation of the University of Virginia. Uh, we have the beginning of the War of 1812, which he supported. Uh, of course, Madison uh, was president when that war was declared. Uh, Jefferson supported its goals and intentions. Um, and it's also in these years that he renewed his correspondence with, with Adams. And that's something we, we really need to talk about because those last 14 years, those letters between Adams and Jefferson are such a, you know, they're so, so beloved. They're some of the, you know, the greatest, uh, you know, they're, they're actually a, some of the great literature of this period are those letters. And um, they, they, they show up a shattered friendship restored and, and deepen over time. And they're, they're quite amazing, I think. And, um, I don't have the Adams ones to, to talk about with you. Maybe someday I'll look at the writings of John Adams, which, which I believe I have. Um, but we just have a few of the Jefferson ones. But they're some of his best letters. And, and we won't have time to, we won't get at them to the next, next few episodes. But um, that's the most important things that happen in those, those years. As for um, specific letters, which ones do I want to focus on here? Um, uh, more, a lot on education. He... Um, for instance, in one letter, he, he, he basically got a request for him to sponsor a, a, a lottery or to sell lottery tickets, essentially, to help fund the, the East Tennessee College, which was being started. And, and Jefferson refuses to do it, saying, basically, I'm shy and I, I'm not a salesman and I don't even believe in lotteries, which is funny because he tries to use a lottery to, to pay off his debts later in life. Um, basically, he's going to like lottery off his possessions or something. Um, but he says, he gives advice on a, a better uh, method of establishing a school. And he doesn't just stop at funding. He goes on about, you know, the living arrangement and, and you know, and how we can have close relationship between teachers and, and students. 
He calls for an academical village instead of a large and common den of noise, filth, and fetid air. And then he goes on with all this advice. And finally, at the end, he says he apologizes for, for stepping beyond his, his duty and, and going on and on about with, the, with this unsolicited advice. But you can tell he's thinking about University of Virginia a little bit um, when he's writing that because he, he, he sees some mistakes being made by this East Tennessee College. Um, he talks to, not, he's not just interested in higher education though, because as uh, an 1810 letter to John Tyler suggests, he was also um, interested in, in the establishment of county schools for, uh, at lower levels uh, for, for primary education. Now, as I said, I, I don't think he, he reflects, he tries to stay away from big political issues in these later letters, at least as far as I read into them. But he does write to John B. Colvin in September 1810, where he, he takes on the question of, of what happens when an official uh, feels the need to fulfill his duties as a public servant needs to go beyond the written law, right? And that this seems to be a problem. And this is exactly the issue Jefferson had with like the the Louisiana Purchase, right? Or even something like the Embargo Act. Like, you know, do you, when the Constitution is not really fit for the needs of the time, do you have a duty to step behind it, right? And he says basically yes. He, he says there is, he's moved away quite far from like a strict literalism. Or maybe Jefferson never really was a strict, uh, like, you know, you know, strict on as strict as powers as we seem. Well, maybe compared to Hamilton, who said, you know, kind of anything goes. You know, there's all these implied powers, and and who knows what the limit of them are. And Jefferson says, no, we got to stick to the enumerated powers. It doesn't mean he necessarily thought that that in certain cases government can't do anything. Obviously, he he acted in ways that the Constitution did not clearly empower him to, uh, with improvements and with uh, the Louisiana Purchase. But he says here, the laws of necessity and self-preservation of saving our country when in danger are a higher obligation. To lose our country by the scrupulous adherence to written law would be to lose the law itself with life, liberty, property, and all those who are enjoying them with us, thus absurdly sacrificing the end to the means. And then he gives an example of, of during the war of some things that Jefferson did. Um, did he talk? Yeah, he gives a couple military examples. He doesn't really talk about um, his own what he did as president, so he doesn't reflect on his own actions. But anyways, it's, it is an acknowledgement that the realities of governance are, are such that the, the fundamental law itself is not always uh, adequate in any particular crisis. Um, so yeah, let's end up here, but we'll, we need to talk about, uh, actually, there's actually some more letters here I wrote down, but um, I do want to begin talking about the, rec the reconciliation with Adams. It was actually Benjamin Rush who, who did this. And we, we talked last time how Abigail Adams wrote to Jefferson and said, you know, you know basically feelers for a, a reconciliation, sending his condolences. And, but Jefferson wrote back, thanks, but then he went into this rant about how Adams had wronged him and how the breakup and the friendship wasn't his fault. And then there were several more letters, which aren't included here, by, between Abigail Adams and Jefferson, which were quite hostile, as I understand them. I haven't read them all, looked at them, but they, they apparently were pretty nasty. And that kind of, that friendship was, was, was worsened, actually. So Benjamin Rush is the one who, who kind of suggests, you know, reestablishing this. And he writes back to Je Benjamin Rush in quite a long letter. And again, he goes through the whole history 
of their broken friendship. And it goes on for several pages here. But interestingly, he, he seems to divide that Federalist faction into kind of the really bad guys, like the monarchist and Adams, who he sees as just kind of pulled along into that. So Adams is either like a monarchist who wants to bring back, you know, like the English Constitution, or he's kind of almost a dupe who gets kind of pulled in by these um, others. I, I think those are the choices he's sort of giving here. He says, uh, um, he wrote to Rush, in which a conclusion of opinions arose between Adams and Colonel Hamilton on the merits of the British Constitution. Mr. Adams giving in his opinion that if it had its defects and abuses to correct it, it would be the most perfect constitution of government ever devised by man. Hamilton, on the contrary, asserted that with its existing vices, it was the most perfect mode of government that could ever be formed, and that the correction of its vices would render it an impractical government. And this, you may be assured, was the real line of difference between the political principles of the two gentlemen. Um, and then he goes on a little bit more about trying to explain why he saw Adams as being um, moved away. He even talks here, though, about uh, Mrs. Adams' effort to reach out to him. So it's a fairly detailed summary of, of their relationship. So this letter, again, it's, it's to Dr. Benjamin Rush, dated January 16th, 1811, is a really interesting summary of, of that whole relationship up into when it was, was shattered. Um, and then the, the, the first letter he actually writes to John Adams would be a little bit later. It would be January 21st, 1812. And actually, it was John Adams who made the first effort. So I don't know if Rush told him, you, should, you, you can write Adams now if you want, or you can write Jefferson if you want. But anyways, uh, he wrote back, and he does have some nice words here. I, I like, um, and he said sort of similar stuff to Abigail Adams. So he's, he's kind of recycling material a little bit, but he writes, A letter from you calls up recollections very dear to my mind. It carries me back to the times when, beset with difficulties and dangers, we were fellow laborers in the same cause, struggling for what was most valuable to man, his right to self-government. Laboring always with the same oar, with some wave ever ahead threatened to overwhelm us, and yet pressing harmless on our bark, we knew not how. We rode through the storm with heart and, and hand and made a happy port. Still, we did not expect to be without rubs and difficulties, and we had them. And then he talks about some of the conflicts they had and the difficulties they had. Um, and then he ends the letter just saying how to stay in good health when you get old. So one thing we need to keep our eyes out for these letters is kind of the old man buddy uh, conversations, right? You know, what do what do aging aging men f who are friends with one another talk about? You know, when they're when they're getting older, right? They're not, they're, they can't play chess with one another. So they, they got these letters. So um, we already get a little bit of this here where Jefferson's telling him how to keep healthy, how to, you know, he's saying like, I ride my horse every day and you should do the same sort of thing. Um, so that, that's, that's the beginning of this reconciliation with, with John Adams. And now would be a good place to stay if not for uh, a couple letters that speak on the issue of, well, at least one letter that speaks on the issue of race. race. And that is, to a man named John Lynch, uh, written in 1811. And once again, he's talking about colonies. You know, once again, he's talking about ethnic cleansing. Um, he writes, uh, you have asked my opinion on the proposition of Mrs. Mifflin to take measures for procuring on the coast of Africa an establishment of which the people of color of these states might from time to time be colonized under the auspices of different governments. Having long made my mind this subject, I have no hesitation in saying that I had ever thought it the most desirable measure we could be adopted. 
end quote. So basically he says, yeah, got to remove these people. But he, he kind of sweetens it saying, well, the good news is these people have already been civilized by 300 years of slavery. I don't know how, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll well, Christianize, I guess, which is odd considering Jefferson's views probably on, on missionaries and Christianity. But they'll be able to bring republicanism or civilization. That's the word he uses, civilization to Africa, right? So that, that idea, I mean, originally colonization, Jefferson never wrote about that when he talked about colonization in earlier letters, as far as I remember. It was always just get rid of these people, um, pure ethnic cleansing. But now he's saying, well, it's ethnic cleansing, but we're, we're kind of spreading civilization to, to Africa. So he's not only advocating, you know, horrendous violations of the rights of, of who would be freed men if this plan works, but also, you know, you know, claiming a whole continent is is uncivilized. So yeah, not one of his most fortunate letters. It's probably, I guess I probably should have ended on the Jefferson on the Jefferson Adams note. Um, but anyways, we'll come back to the issue of slavery in some of his later letters. Um, but yeah, that's it for now. I'm, I'm up to an hour almost. So thanks for bearing with me in this kind of rich collection of, of letters from, from these years. In the next episode, I'll be looking at, uh, I believe it's, I think it's just uh, 1813, 1814, and 1815. So it's a, it's a lot of letters from that period of time, quite a few from, uh, between, well, two John Adams. So we'll focus on that. But um, yeah, three years of retirement. Let's see what he says. His most vibrant years of retirement, I suppose, before... He really starts getting old. Um, so in the next episode, I'll look at those those letters. And in the meantime, let me know what you think of, of Jefferson's presidency, uh, his retirement, his relationship with Adams, his views on uh, did his political views change as a result of being president on things like the powers of the president and, and Congress? Or uh, how do you, what do you think about uh, his views on colonization? Uh, am I using too harsh of language for this? I mean, it was kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea, so it's not like they ever got the trains involved in it. But you know, it's you know, there was migration though, and the colonization movement did have some effect. So, anyways, uh, just let me know what you think about any of this stuff that I've been talking about, and send me an email or or, or drop a comment below. Uh, next episode, we'll look at the letters Jefferson wrote in 1813, 1814, and 1815 during the the final years of the War of 1812, I guess. Um, so as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.